Hi, it's Bob from Royal Spa. Soaking in a hot tub full of Epsom salts is the absolute best way to minimize everyday aches and pains. And we know all about Epsom salts at Royal Spa. Royal Spa hot tubs are the only hot tubs on the market that can safely and effectively use Epsom salts. Made right here in Indiana, Royal Spa hot tubs are the highest quality hot tubs on the market. Visit any one of our three Indianapolis locations or visit royalspa.com. Ah, Royal Spa. Michael Grady is with us now, Indy Zone, the TV voice of the Minnesota Timberwolves. MG, we were joking ahead of time that perhaps you were you know, busy finishing up on the tables, but you haven't left for Las Vegas yet, correct? Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, I got there you now. Go. There yeah. we go. Yeah, I'm new to this radio thing. So, um, yeah, I'm new to gonna, this radio <laughs> thing. <laughs> um, uh, what's, what's good? First of all, good to be on with you guys. Uh, and, and Lara, you know your fam. How you doing? I'm great. So great. It's good. always fantastic to have an excuse to get to catch up with you. Always. Um, but no, it's been a, it's been a whirlwind uh, the last, you know, 48 hours or so. I had to fly to... I woke up 7 a.m., flew to South Carolina yesterday for an interview with Anthony Edwards. He just signed his $260 million rookie contract, flew back last night, woke up today, get a fresh haircut because you need a fresh haircut for Vegas. And um, and then I've got to finish packing for uh, 10 days in uh, in the desert. So, um, so I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. It'll be fun. MG, I know that you're you're a, a loyal friend and are always kind to come on, but in our text thread last night, I didn't know it was a cross-country journey that was in the middle of all this, so I, I extra yeah. appreciate you making time for us. Oh, you know, you guys are, you guys are family, so I'm always down. <laughs> always down, you know that, you know that. But no, it's been a, it's been a fun, fun uh, you know, busy summer, and Vegas will be, Vegas will be wild. I'll do a little bit of stuff with the Timberwolves, I'll be six games for NBA TV. Um, hopefully when Bayama plays in the Spurs game that I'll call, there'll, there'll be a lot of fun action, a lot of stuff happening with the NBA. And of course, I've been keeping my eye on what's going on with the Pacers too, on what's been an interesting summer for them. Before we jump into the Pacers, I want to go back to this interview with Anthony Edwards. Uh, as much as you can, tease us up on what you got out of that. What was your, your biggest takeaway? Because if you're flying out to do that, you know, sit down, getting back out of there, it's got to be certainly some, some meaty stuff to make it worthwhile. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, it, it seems, you know, cliche for a play-by-play guy to gush about, you know, a key player on his team. Um, but I'm I'm not diving into hyperbole when I say he's one of the best players that I've ever been around, that I've ever had the privilege of covering. And of course, my Indiana days with Paul George and guys like that, and in Brooklyn I was around KD and, and Kyrie and some really talented players there. Obviously, all-time great players there. Um, but Ant is 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 still just 21 years old. He put, had to put the team on his back last season to keep them afloat when Carl Anthony Towns was injured. Um, he wanted to play every single night. He didn't like taking games off. Um, he, he had a bad ankle sprain late in the season. I know a lot of guys who would be done would have been done for the rest of the season. He only missed a couple of games. Wanted to come back. First time All-Star season ago. And again, he's still so young, still just 21 years old. And so he has a real old-school mentality and old-school approach when it comes to competing and battling. And I know a lot of folks are skeptical when they see guys get these rookie contract extensions and some of them haven't accomplished anything. Folks might be hating on Halliburton, you know, hasn't been in the playoffs, got the 260 mil. Um, Desmond Bain, why are they giving him that much money? Um, you know, LaMelo Ball, like what's he really done? 
Um, and and all all of that is up for these guys to prove the doubters and the haters wrong. And with Anthony Edwards, it's the same kind of thing. He has been to the playoffs for the last two years, and he has elevated his game in the playoffs the last two years. And so we just kind of talked about his journey, um, talked about how his hunger is going to remain the same, you know, despite the money coming in and just the people around him that have helped him get to the point. He has to get to this point. It's a, it's a real fascinating story. As you look at what the Timberwolves have, like I guess we can't officially say anything on it until things are signed, but as you look at the expectations for them going into next season and with Anthony Edwards being this clear centerpiece now, where do things change, if at all, for the Timberwolves after a very strong but, but not as long-lived as they hoped appearance in the postseason? Yeah, well, last year was all about the attitude of man. How is this all going to fit? You know, with Paul Anthony Towns, <clears throat> and then you know, both guys were kind of dinged up to start the season. Uh, Gobert had a knee, Carl had a severe illness, and then right around Thanksgiving, um, Carl has a severe uh, calf injury, and so he misses fifty plus games, and so you really never got to see what this season looked like at full strength. Now, Carl going down allowed Anthony Edwards to blossom into the all-star that he is. Um, but now, fresh start, fresh opportunity to see what this team is going to look like. Really constructed, fully healthy, keeping to hit the ground running. If they don't, then changes are going to be made. And obviously, Carl Anthony Towns, it's no secret that his name is at the top of the list when it comes to potential changes and things don't look great to start the year. But for now, I mean, you have Joe Barrett at five, you have Carl Anthony Towns at the four, um, Mike Conley, Lawrence North product at the at the point guard spot. Jaden McDaniels is a tremendous defensive player, and then Anthony Edwards trying to again continuing to take his game to another level. And that's not a bad, it's not a bad starting five in the Western Conference. So, um, so a lot of expectations headed into next year. Michael, referencing, going back to, you know, summer league play, one of the conversations that we've been having a lot on the show so far is just about in terms of looking at NFL training camp and the NFL preseason, how you weigh in terms of the amount of time that you will see a lot of these rookies, a lot of these high draft picks and all of that in order to get them ready for the regular season. When you look at NBA summer league, the much anticipated, of course, debut of Victor Weminyan that you referenced, how much is reasonable to expect to see these very high-profile rookies and, and new additions to the respective rosters when we get to the summer league? I, you know, it's a balance, and I think Larry, each team is going to have a different um, approach when it comes to it. And, and, and my book, and this is selfish as a, as a broadcaster, I want to see as much of these guys as possible um, because in reality, it's July. You know, training camp's not going to start until late September. Preseason games won't start until October. There's a significant gap there, so I would love to get a, a really good look um, at, at these guys. And at the same time, especially given what happened in a pro-am game with Chet Holmgren um, last season, um, you can understand that teams want to be cautious, yeah. especially if they have a high-value pick like a Wimbyama, um, like a Scoot, uh, like a Scoot Anderson, like a, like a Brandon Miller and some of these guys. So, so there, I, I imagine there will be some teams that are extremely cautious. And at the same time, I think there will be teams that, are, that, that just want to get a good look. And so some of these guys will play plenty. Um, Keegan Murray, for example, was a starter on a playoff team a season ago with, with uh, Sacramento. Um, played quality minutes for the Kings. I think it was last night. Put up 40-plus points and uh, looked really good. But he's a guy that I, 
he doesn't need to play much, um, but because uh, I think you know what you have in, in Keegan. But it's a good experience. I think it's really good competitive energy. The arenas are going to be uh, packed for sure. I think I think it's going to be a fun atmosphere and a great opportunity to learn learn and see what some of these guys are all about. TV voice of the Minnesota Timberwolves, Michael Grady, taking some time with us here on the Fan Midday Show. MG, while you were with the Brooklyn Nets, you, of course, crossed paths with the Pacers' latest signing, or reported signing anyway, in Bruce Brown, getting a reported two-year, $45 million deal from the Indiana Pacers. When you look back at his time at Brooklyn to what he was able to do with Denver, did you see that within his game, that type of capability to embrace a role and take over when called upon? And how do you see him meshing with a team like the Indiana Pacers with where their trajectory is? Um, Bruce Brown is one of one of my favorite people in the um, he's, he's, he's such a fiery competitor, and in Brooklyn, they utilized him as we, we nicknamed him Biggie Small because he was a, he's a guard that that they were using almost like a power forward. And so he was rebounding. He was hitting shots in the paint, hitting floaters and different things like that. When he was in Detroit, he was more of a point guard. And previously, he was more of a point guard. Um, but in Brooklyn, they used him in a different role because they were pretty much set in the backcourt. And then in Denver, he kind of went back to the guard duties, playing backup point um, for Jamal Murray. And it was it was the perfect situation for him, you know, in Denver, the way that he was utilized and given the talent on the roster, given all the attention that Jokic gets, given all the attention that Jamal Murray gets, Michael Porter's, a, you know, a talent, talented player. I mean, they have guys that can go out there and get buckets. And then Bruce Brown could basically be used as kind of a utility guy, whatever you need, dirty work guy, hustle, fast break situations aggressive defensive player on the perimeter. Um, uh, and so as long as he's in a, in a role like that, you can't ask of him to, to, um, to uh, you know, hey, we need you to go out there and get 20 a night, or we need you to go out there and hit a bunch of threes, or we need you to go out there and get us 14 assists or something like that. You know, he has a role. He's a tremendous, tremendous um, above average, you know, role player in this league and I'm, I'm happy he got paid I'm happy he's going to be in Indiana because his, his brash bravado and all that type of thing trash talk I mean he'll hit a corner three and say something to the opposing bench um, and he backs up a lot of his talk so uh, uh, that's my guy I'm really happy to see him um, come to Indiana really excited to see how they look next season and as I was just scrolling through Twitter Scott Agnes is reporting Pacers have scheduled a press conference for 1pm with two players he's expecting that to be Tyrese Halliburton and Bruce Brown as they acknowledge and formally announce those contracts for those players respectively. When you look at the significant addition of Bruce Brown, the extension very deservedly so for Tyrese Halliburton, then draft picks like Jairus Walker. Grady, what encourages you most about the way that Kevin Pritchard is currently structuring this roster and how they have addressed alongside Rick Carlisle this 2023 offseason? Yeah, I think, I think it's going to be fascinating to see how Rick Carlisle puts it all together. Because, um, uh, you know, when I was praising the Bruce Brown pickup on social media, folks were, joking, folks were you know, replying and joking about how they, um, they have a lot of guys to do similar things. 
And so that's going to, that's the challenge for Rick Carlisle to organize and make sure that it all fits and works given, you know, Benedict Matherin, what he was able to do a season ago and his trajectory as a talented, fiery, fiery player who's still just scratching the surface at his ability. And of course, Therese Halliburton as being the guy that makes everything go as the orchestrator and maestro out there on the court and Miles Turner, you know, and, and everything that he brings to the table with his shot making as a big, his shot blocking and that whole thing. So I think I'm really curious, and you mentioned Walker, I'm really curious to see how all these pieces work together. We saw this team make huge strides a season ago. They certainly were in the playoff mix for a stretch before injuries and other things crept in, and they should be in the mix, and I think it would be a disappointment if they weren't at least in a, in a play-in situation this upcoming season. MG, appreciate you making time for us again. I apologize. Didn't know it was a cross-country affair. but uh, sa- oh, All good. Safe all travels good. to you out in Las Vegas, my man. Oh, man. Good talking to you both. Hope we catch up soon. Always great talking to you, fam. Safe travels. You got you. Take care. That's Michael Grady, TV voice of the Minnesota Timberwolves. Evan Sidery joins us now. Evan, as, as you followed all of NBA Free Agency, and thank you very much for joining us, but as you follow all of NBA Free Agency and all the trade rumors that arrive with it, we were just discussing the Damon Lillard situation. Are we any clearer on if it's Miami, if it's a three-team deal, if it's going to be somebody else at this point than we were a few days ago when he asked for the trade? It certainly feels like at this point, just based from all these latest reports from Adrian Wojnarowski, that they were kind of just in a stalemate between Miami and Damian Lillard's camp in Portland, all just staring each other down here, hoping that Damian Lillard wants to go to the Heat. The Heat want him to be there. But it really seems like, to me, that it's going to be the Portland Trailblazers are going to really hold out for the best possible offer and see what happens. But I have to imagine with Damian Lillard and his agent coming out and saying that he only wants to play for the Miami Heat, that's going to be a long, drawn-out process here, probably another couple weeks till it happens. But for, it seems like that the Blazers don't want to take on that much salary uh, in return for Damian Lillard. So it'll probably be like a three- or four-team deal with a lot of details involved in it. It sounded like that in terms of conversations that had emerged, there were some people speculating, hey, could, could New York be a contender? What about Philadelphia? Are the 76ers someone? Are there any other teams that you think could realistically insert themselves into the conversation and particularly be a counter for Miami? Or is it exclusively Miami from everything that we know? Or is there someone who you think could weasel their way into trying to entice the talents of Damian Lillard? Yeah, it's a really good question. I really kind of feels like all the momentum is going towards Miami at this point, and unless Damian Lillard somehow opens up his list again to where he won't be a disgruntled player going to a different situation. But I do think that there's a couple teams that do make sense, so they want to get involved here, and that they're the teams that hold a lot of picks. And there's the Brooklyn Nets, who they've gotten a lot of picks in the Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant trades. They have a couple good young pieces, too. They've always made a lot of sense to me as a potential target just based off their draft capital and their young assets. And he'd be a lot of fun with those young guys in Brooklyn with Mikhail Brews and Cam Johnson. And another one, too, just an under-the-radar one I would keep an eye on would be the Utah Jazz because they have all these picks. Damian Lillard played college in Utah as well, so maybe that could pull out his heartstrings a little bit. But uh, it kind of just trying to think of some realistic options. really not that many that could go out of their way to try to convince Damian Lillard unless a team like for example the Boston Celtics decide to go Jalen Brown in a deal like that which I very much doubt would even be a possibility so I'd probably look at those two teams the Nets and the Jazz and kind of go from there on that 
For Damian Lillard, who has played to this point the entirety of his NBA career with Portland, seven-time All-Star, all of the different accolades, he has established himself as such a figurehead of that community. They've built so much of the team, the franchise, around his being there. How did things kind of sour this quickly? Is it purely just Damian Lillard sees that there is a fleeting opportunity to finally win a championship and Portland's not the place to do it? Or is there more to the story that has gotten them to this point? It just kind of feels like long, drawn-out frustration from Damian Lillard and finally wanting to be in a winning situation because ever since around 2017, the Blairs have been trying to be win-now, try to be in this position to help Damian Lillard get a championship. But every single time they come up short, they don't make the biggest moves possible, which he wants them to do. So it's kind of just been a long, drawn-out kind of expectation that Damian Lillard would eventually get to this point. 11 years in his career, it kind of was later than everyone thought it would happen, but kudos to him being as loyal as possible in that situation. I feel like the NBA draft, when they had the third overall pick, and then not trading away that third overall pick, and then Scoot Henderson, for a superstar type of player like a Paul George, for example, probably was Damian Lillard's last straw there, because now you add in another young guy to that mix of an extremely young core now in Portland with Damian Lillard. That's not a playoff contender. That's not a championship contender at all. So I don't blame Lillard for asking out, but the way he's going about it, it seems like kind of forcing his way to one spot in Miami where the Blazers won't be able to get much assets in return for him. It is making it a little bit dicey, and a long relationship that we all thought was super strong between Portland and Lillard is kind of souring here at the end just based off the ramifications of wanting to get this trade done. National NBA reporter Evan Sidery with us here on the Fan Midday Show. We live in a NBA society, Evan, where player empowerment or players themselves hold most of the cards, generally hold all the power compared to the other sports leagues. As you look at the chess match that's being played both by Portland ownership as well as Dame's agent and Dame himself basically saying flat out, as you highlighted there, Miami is where he wants to go, thereby kind of further chopping up any leverage that the Trailblazers actually have for other teams. Is this a stress test for how far players really do have power within the league, even with all the loyalty that's there? Is this a stress test for that exercise of the amount of power these players have? Yeah, this kind of feels like a really important moment, to be honest, for the NBA, because Damian Lillard just signed his four-year Supermax extension. And I know Kevin Durant had the same situation last year, but this kind of feels like more where Durant had to wait six plus months to get what he wanted in the Phoenix Suns. I had to wait till midseason. Now Damian Lillard seems like he wants Miami only. He wants Miami now as soon as possible. And without a no trade clause on that contract, over two hundred plus million dollars still on this contract too. Those last two years were sixty plus million dollars a year for him as well. That's I think it's going to be a situation to me where it's going to be players. If he doesn't get what he wants here, players are going to want to hope for no trade clauses in their contracts moving forward here to kind of have the power back because Bradley Beal had that when he went to the. Phoenix. Phoenix Suns. He had to choose where he wanted to go. If he didn't have that, I doubt he would end up in Phoenix because they didn't really have much assets to play with here. It just kind of seems like stars are trying to loophole the system and teams, small market teams especially, are kind of standing up for themselves here. So this might be a, a thing to watch out for in the future where when these players sign these big contracts and a year later force them for, try to force their way out, it might get uglier and uglier as we, the more process we draw on through. Talking big picture, but also Pacers involved. A few days ago, DeMontis Sabonis agreed to a contract extension with Sacramento, and you were retweeting this, Evan, saying that that trade, Tyrese Halliburton, DeMontis Sabonis, is going to go down as one of the cleanest win-win blockbuster trades in recent memory. How much of a win on both sides was that trade, as we have a couple of years now to look back and reflect upon it, and Tyrese is obviously signing that extension as well with the Pacers. What made 
that trade as successful for both parties as it has been when you look back to the hindsight that you now have of 2020? Yeah, I think originally when we look back to 2020 when that deal happened, everyone thought the Pacers won that trade in a landslide. And I think they still absolutely won that trade with a young point guard in Tyrese Halliburton, who's a new face of the franchise. But when you see how well DeMontis Sabonis fits with De'Aaron Fox, fits within that new offense that Mike Brown is running, it's a fantastic fit both ways. I mean, both these teams are set up for a very long-term future of winning. Uh, we saw the Kings last year really jump from 25-plus wins to over 50 last year. It's a huge jump for the Kings with Sabonis in the fold there. And you see with the contracts, almost half a billion dollars between those two guys with Demonis Sabonis and Tyrese Halliburton on their new contracts. It just kind of goes to show you that these kind of win-win trades are very much rarity nowadays. You don't really see a team acquire a superstar and get a superstar in return, and it works out as quickly as it does. It usually takes around a couple of years for that new team to really see it the benefits there, but really right away in a year, we see Tyrese Halliburton become an all-star in Indiana. We see Demonis Sabonis become an all-star in Sacramento, too, and that team has so much success. And now you see this Pacers team, how they're building around Tyrese Halliburton, too. They're a team that kind of reminds me of the Kings of last year, where they could be in a really good spot next year to take that big jump as well. So all around, every way you look at it, it was a huge trade when it happened, but now looking back even, even more on it, I think it's really, you can go down, like you mentioned, it's one of the better win-win trades that I've really seen in the last 20-plus years. We've officially reached that point of free agency where free agents can now officially sign contracts and teams can formally introduce them. As Lara mentioned, the top of our conversation, that's taking place right now at Gamebridge Fieldhouse with Bruce Brown being welcomed to the Indy Media for the first time. Ordinarily, I give front offices a hard time because anytime any signing or draft pick happens, it's, oh, it was number one target. We're very excited about it. But with free agency and the amount of money that the Pacers spent to get Bruce Brown, I fully believe Kevin Pritchard when he says what he did today. Bruce Brown was our number one target this summer. We feel good about it because it was swift. It was quick. It was one of the first moves that came off the board when NBA free agency officially opened last Friday. As you look at Bruce Brown, the career that he's had to this point, he gets his payday, he gets rewarded, but he's also going to be called upon to fill a necessary role on this Pacers team from jump. Absolutely, and he really fits exactly what Indiana needs. We've heard about the last couple of years, and especially last year. They had an elite offense with Tyrese Halbert on the court, but on defense especially, it was one of the worst in the NBA, 27th in the league last year. But now you add in Bruce Brown, even though he's on the smaller side, six foot four, he's one of the better on-ball wing defenders in the NBA. You'll see him probably take the toughest matchup most nights defensively for the Pacers next season. Although it's an overpay, you had to reach the salary floor for the new CBA, which means you had to spend about 90% of your salary cap where you had to give up to other teams and taxes. So I think the Pacers doing what they had to do overpaying, making that second year a team option. I know $22.5 million is a lot of money. But Bruce Brown within this role in Indiana as an elite defender, a connecting passer, a good shooter in the corners for three-pointers as well, he should slide right in as a 2-3 combo for Indiana, be an instant starter, and make a huge impact. When you add in Bruce Brown, Jairus Walker to the mix as well, this Indiana team has really overhauled their defense. And next year, I would not be surprised at all if this team is like a top 15 defense to go with the top five offense. And that right there is a playoff team for the Pacers if that happens. 
From a big picture standpoint, aside from the emerging drama in Portland and a lot of eyes fixated on what happens with Damian Lillard and that situation, what are the other free agency, not that he is a free agent, but that's the trade situation, but with this early part of NBA free agency, who are the other big factors who are going to be targeted that are going to be premium uh, areas of focus for the remaining teams in the conversation? As it seems like the Pacers are probably going to be pretty quiet. It seems like they've already really made their commitments and already decided how they are going to allocate in free agency. Where is the other conversation and focus on? Yeah, it really feels like the second wave of free agency is really on hold until we see two deals happen. That's Damian Lillard with Miami or wherever he ends up, or it's James Harden with Philadelphia. It sounds like Philadelphia wants to keep James Harden, but that market is kind of slowing everything down there with these two superstars on the trade block. If if the Sixers get what they want, they want draft compensation, young players, which it sounds like they're not getting so far. So I would not be shocked that drags on for a while. Same with Damian Lillard with the Blazers. It seems like both sides are digging in pretty hard on what they want to happen there. It really feels like when you see the tier one of free agency, nowadays you see free agency, it's all done within the first 48 hours as as far as the big names go. Now it's kind of bargain shop hunting on the margins for teams. Maybe it's using an exception or two for some players too. But the second wave of free agency really right now is on hold until those two things resolve in Harden and Lillard. So that's what I think every team's looking out for right now is eventually when those dominoes fall, you'll see the rest of those signings probably go through. Evan, I was under the impression, at least the early reports, when James Harden accepted his player option, opted into that player option, that it was to allow the 76ers to trade him and move on from him. And now it's feeling like, and maybe rightfully so, Daryl Morey wants to take a full look at this and not rush to anything, make sure that he gets proper compensation for James Harden back. Is there a scenario where now that he's opted or he's taken that player option where Maury doesn't get the offer he wants and Harden all of a sudden is with Philadelphia by the time opening night rolls around? I would actually lean surprisingly more towards that happening now than I think a trade does. Just based off everything you're hearing from ESPN, Zach Lowe, Adrian Wojnarowski, that it sounds like Daryl Morey is asking, like you mentioned, a super high price for James Harden. As for the Clippers, for example, they want Terrence Mann and multiple draft picks, and the Clippers are balking at that. They're just going to offer expiring contracts and, and fill our maybe second-round picks, and that's not enough for a player of James Harden's caliber. And we've seen Daryl Morey do this before. Ben Simmons, he held him out for over six-plus months, and eventually they got James Harden out of it. But I have to imagine with James Harden at this stage of his career, it's going to be hard to kind of kind of find a team that's willing to pay a heavy price for James Harden. So I think eventually this will end with probably James Harden staying in Philadelphia and probably reassessing it in February because we've seen Daryl Morey do this before. And at this point, I'd probably bet against Daryl Morey taking a bad offer than trying to get him off the books quick. From James's mental standpoint, do you think that had any – crossing of his mind when he opted in because on the one hand he had true control over where he was going to go but he might not get the same payday that he would have had he just opted in like he did or is there going to be ramifications to that now knowing that he might not get traded but he is going to be making a fair sum of money next year yeah, I think it was also James Harden looking at the free agency market this year and seeing that no team was going to be willing to offer him exactly what he was looking for, which was a $200-plus million contract, a four- or five-year deal. 
And that wasn't out there. Houston went out instead and paid Fred Van Vliet. Harden wanted to go back to the Rockets, but the Rockets weren't mutually interested in that, it sounds like. So they move on to Fred Van Vliet. That's a team off the board there. And when you look around the market, there's really not that many teams with cap space who need a point guard. It's going to take a lot of usage away from other players in James Harden. So I think the market just kind of dictated James Harden to accept that player option at $35 million because he might not have gotten exactly what he was looking for there. Probably just a one- or two-year deal from a, a contending team elsewhere, probably for a lot less money at that, too. So I think it was the realization on James Harden's part that this $35 million is guaranteed, and the rest of it won't be if he declines that player option. It might not be exactly what he's look, looking for when he goes out to the market there. So I think James Harden kind of knew in the back of his head that this could be a possibility, and the longer this drags out, kind of feels like we're heading toward that way. Evan, just a little bit, little bit ago, we talked with Michael Grady as we were previewing some NBA Summer League, and Michael will be on the call for the debut of Victor Wembanyama. Is this the most anticipated NBA Summer League that we have seen in recent memory when you think about these games are sellouts, they're being nationally televised uh, on ESPN? Is, has there been kind of more anticipation for a Summer League that you can remember? Yeah, and when you look back to how big Summer League's gotten over the last 10 years, because Summer League used to really just be a diehard NBA fans thing where it wasn't a lot of eyeballs on it. But now over the last 10-plus years, it's a huge event out in Las Vegas. And the last one I can remember having this much hype was Lonzo Ball at the Lakers in 2017. But now you look at Victor Wembanyama, he's viewed as the greatest prospect, arguably of all time in the NBA. I would say more realistically in that same breath as LeBron James 20 years ago in 2003. And I think that the hype is certainly warranted for Victor Wembanyama. He has elite freakish athleticism, uh, size. He can shoot the ball like Kevin Durant almost in certain situations. So the upside is there with Wembenyama. I look back, like I mentioned, Alonzo Ball in 2017, but Wembenyama and what he might do for that Spurs team, he's easily probably the most hyped prospect heading to Vegas that I've remembered in the last 10-plus years for sure. Evan, we know that the rules have changed in terms of the salary floor and the need for teams to hit that at the start of the league year versus at the end of the league year. And we know the Houston Rockets needed to reach that salary floor. All that said, the eye-popping contracts they've given out to Fred Van Vliet and Dylan Brooks around the opening stages of free agency. What's the plan there? How much of that is they had to reach the salary floor, so of course they're going to spend? And how much of it is, oh, well, there's legitimate contributions that could be made in the help of developing the young, raw core that they feel they have out there in Houston? Yeah, it kind of feels like just paying the tax of being a losing team the last three or four years. The Rockets have been the worst team in the NBA, bar none, over the last two or three years. They just have looked more like an AAU team than they have an actual NBA team with no discipline on either end of the court and a lot of young guys, not a lot of veterans. And they had to pay a pretty premium tax to get Fred Van Vliet away from Toronto and Dylan Brooks away from Memphis. And I was stunned by the Dylan Brooks contract, even more so than the Fred Van Vliet contract. Four years, $80 million, all guaranteed for Dylan Brooks after his exit in Memphis was really stunning to me. Fred Van Vliet getting a max contract, too, was very surprising as well. But those two guys are known to be really good culture setters as far as what Emmy Udoka wants to do in Houston, be defense first to help those guys out. I think for being veteran leaders in that locker room, that will be worth the price. But the early results for that team, I still don't think they're going to be that great of a team the next year or so. So it might look look back on it and probably be bad contracts, but at least get them out of the gutter of the NBA, so to say, and get them more respectable. Getting guys like Van Vliet and Brooks were probably worth the price of admission there. Evan, a non-free agent tie, but more of a finalization of a draft pick with a local tie. Adrian Wojnarowski reported yesterday that Trace Jackson Davis had reached a four-year deal with the Golden State Warriors that included two guaranteed seasons. 
obviously there's a number of question marks from a big picture standpoint of how Trace Jackson Davis can thrive in today's NBA. How effective can he be? And, and is he able to stretch the floor? All those are questions that will get answered over the course of that deal. But when you look at the Warriors being willing to guarantee two of those seasons, as well as it being a four-year deal with options, you would think they would likely pick up what type of clarity is now made for this opportunity for Trace Jackson Davis and what he has the ability to gain under Steve Kerr with Draymond Green, of course, coming back with that extension? Yeah, I know here locally in Indiana, there was a lot of, of hysteria about passing on Trace Jackson Davis, and for good reason. I think he was a legitimate top 35 talent in this year's draft. Probably should have been a first-round pick looking back on it. But his agent kind of steering him towards a really good situation, in my opinion, in Golden State, where compared to most places for Trace Jackson Davis, you would have gotten a two-way contract, maybe one or two guaranteed years tops. But with Golden State, Kevon Looney's on a two-year contract now. There's no other big men really in the way of Trace Jackson Davis. He could be a guy right away in Golden State where he could carve out a 10-15 minute per game role. And that's unheard of really for a guy that late in the draft to do that. But Trace Jackson Davis landing in a spot with the Warriors, getting that guaranteed money on top of it too. I think he's a player that you can look back on later this year or a couple years down the road. And he's going to fit very well as a role player with the Golden State Warriors. I think he fits very well helping Steph Curry in some past situations, setting those guys up defensively too. He's a great fit next to Draymond Green defensively and Kevon Looney. So I think as far as development goes and actually getting a quicker role, I think Trace Jackson Davis could really break the Warriors' rotation this year and really be a legitimate good rookie for them, which I think is great for Trace and it's great for his development too because not a lot of places are going to be offered that for him. It's hard to argue that's not the perfect spot for him, and we can't wait to see exactly how it all unfolds underneath Steve Kerr's direction out there in Golden State. Evan, great to catch up. I know it's still a very busy time for you. No doubt we'll talk as Summer League unfolds and comes to a conclusion here in about 10 days or so. Absolutely. Anytime. Appreciate it. That's Evan Sidery, national NBA reporter, taking some time with us here on the Fan Midday Show. Welcome back. Thanks for hanging out with us. I am Lara Overton, hopping on the Midday Show alongside Jimmy Cook and Eddie Garrison. And joining us now from ESPN, she covers the Chicago Bears and also does all things across ESPN platforms. Radio host also appearing on various ESPN shows. It is Courtney Cronin, and I have absolutely no idea where in the country you are at this point because I know you were just on Around the Horn yesterday. I think you were in New York. And now I know that you were in an airport at some point in between. This is like an episode of Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego right now. Courtney, where are we talking to you from? And first and foremost, thanks for taking so much time out of your schedule to hop on and join us. Because I know you have ESPN radio stuff coming up later on this afternoon. No, I appreciate it. I'm actually back in Chicago for a couple days uh, before going back to New York. It's the summer of the grind which you know very well Lara and training camp comes up in a couple weeks and none of us are mentally or physically prepared for it but we just kind of run back into it which could be you know seven straight months if your team's really good of of a grind on a day-to-day basis if you get all the way through the postseason but it's exciting it's you know it's it's the middle of July. It's a slow time in the sports calendar, but we know that football's right around the corner, so it's great. Living out of a suitcase a little bit before we do get into the thick of the football season as you're bouncing back and forth between duties in Chicago and then also on the East Coast. Most recently coming off, I'm going to boast on my fellow IU product right now, her 20th career win on Around the Horn, I saw, doing everything all across the platforms on radio and on television and on ESPN. 
ESPN.com. And Courtney, we want to reference a recent piece that you had on ESPN.com in which you studied Ryan Poles, Bears general manager, and the time in which he has ascended to his role as general manager in Chicago. What were your biggest takeaways from that? And how definitive of a year really is this for the partnership between Ryan Poles and Matt Eberflus, of course, the former Colts defensive coordinator, now Bears head coach. Yeah, I think it's interesting with Poles' path to Chicago. He spent 13 seasons with Kansas City. I mean, sometimes you see people bounce around a couple different NFL organizations, but his come up in the league has been with a team that went from worst to first over the course of you know, a decade, they were had the number 32 or number one overall pick, and then they've had the number 32 overall pick. And I think seeing how those, what those parallels are of how he is very much a build through the draft person. That's his philosophy. That's what he learned under Scott Pioli, under John Dorsey, and then of course, Brett Beach in Kansas City. And they've nailed some really good draft picks, Travis Kelsey, Patrick Mahomes, and they've won two Super Bowls, and he was a part of the one in 2021. So very clearly, he had you know he he has the right path, the right pedigree uh, from where he came from, and that's what he's trying to implement here. Not necessarily like word for word the exact carbon copy of what he did in Kansas City, but it's a blueprint to follow. He's still wanting to build through the draft. The more cracks you can have. Uh, at the draft board, the better. That's why you saw the Bears this year, again, with double-digit draft picks, the same as last year. And I think it's it's at a point now where you have a team that's in year two of a rebuild where you're trying to figure out in earnest this year, now that you have some more pieces around Justin Fields, if he's going to be the franchise guy. So I look at it, and I think that Poles has done everything he said he was going to do, which you know, oftentimes people get, for one reason or another, have to stray the course and he hasn't done that. So, I mean, will he at some day have to make a hard decision that leads him off the path that he's been on and, and he'll have to get back on? Sure. I think every general manager ends up going through that. And those that I talk to for this piece, just kind of their perception of what Poles has done in the early part of his general manager career, is that he's made some really tough decisions in a place that has seen the turnover again and again and again, whether it's you know Jerry Angelo to, to Ryan Pace and now to Ryan Poles. And he's trying to do things in a very deliberate, calculated manner so they don't have to go through this rebuild again. But a lot hinges on the success of the quarterback this year, which is why during the offseason you saw them trade the number one overall pick and get a haul back that has not only future draft capital, but DJ Moore this year. So there's, they've set Justin Fields up for the most part, for success, at least certainly on the offensive side of the ball. There's still work to be done on the defensive side. But they're in a good spot, I think, for a jump this year. It's not going to be three wins to ten wins. I think that's short-sighted if you just take a look at what this roster still doesn't have. But they're in a wide-open division. They have a quarterback that they believe in. And if it doesn't go according to plan, they have the fail-safe of extra draft capital and that additional first-round pick next year to – maybe make a change uh, that could lead them back to or lead them on the path to where they want to go. Courtney, what is an unsuccessful additional year of this rebuild for the Bears? Is it Justin Fields regresses? Is it the pieces they brought in like DJ Moore don't mesh? I agree with you. Win and loss should not be the determining factor of whether or not this was a successful campaign for them. But inside that organization, what would be a failure or not a success in terms of the trajectory that they want to be on in this rebuild? 
you know, some people would go say if Fields is terrible this year or if he's, you know, if you don't see the jump, that that's, you know, an epic failure that is going to set the franchise back. I actually don't see it that way because they've built in the protections by getting the additional first round pick from Carolina that they'll have their own. If they're if they're not if Fields isn't good this year, they're not a good football team. Like there's the correlation that we saw there last year where he was good in games, but the supporting cast around him was not very good. So that's the reason they were a three win football team. But if he's not good this year, that probably means that he's reached you know, he's kind of pushed it as far as he can go in this offense and that they might want to turn to the draft next year to find a quarterback. So I don't think it's the worst-case scenario. I mean, they've, they've certainly thought through that scenario, but I would say it's more the supporting cast. If, if the trade that you pulled off for Chase Claypool, uh, sending your second-round pick, which became a first-round pick um, due to the draft order, you know, if he doesn't pan out, then you just wasted a first-round, more or less first-round draft capital for a receiver that – you know, could be is extension eligible, and if he pans out, great. But if he doesn't, that's a big miss. And I, I look across the board. The offensive line right now is the the most concrete it's been going into training camp that we've had in Chicago in a while. So that's that's a great spot. But are those pieces actually going to lead to better pass protection for Justin Fields? So, it, it, to me, if they can't get out of, you know, get out of that like spot where it's, you know, three win season, everything is just awful at the end. The defense looks terrible. You know, that to me is a bigger sign that something's not working internally than if Fields has a bad season because they've already like written out that scenario and played out worst case. And they know they're in a best case scenario. If that ends up becoming their reality, they could go draft his replacement. Courtney, as much as you mentioned, Chicago's success hinging on Justin Fields. I think that as you look at Indianapolis, much of the argument could be made that their success isn't just tied to the emergence of a quarterback this season. It is really on that of Jonathan Taylor and the season that he has is, has in so much of the offense, You know, relying upon his having greater production and greater health than he did in 2022. And there was a recent article by Dan Graziano, your ESPN colleague, in which he noted that Jonathan Taylor is one of the most intriguing people, you know, intriguing players to follow going into the 2023 season, not only because of the impact he has on this team, but because of the position at running back. How difficult has this landscape become of running backs who are in a contract situation like Jonathan Taylor is getting what their perceived value is versus what the market value has been set for that position? It's changed a lot, and it's not a great time to be a running back. It's not a very lucrative position outside of maybe one contract that you might get. And, you know, we saw it with Dalvin Cook back in Minnesota. When he signed that extension in 2020, that was a time where Alvin Kamara got his big extension. How'd that pan out? Like, it didn't, it was a contract that didn't really age all that well. And, you know, Dalvin Cook is played a fully healthy season last year. It's the first time in his career that he did it. But Minnesota still found the better fit for them was moving on to Alexander Madison, that cook at the price, the age, the production that they could get, you know, they could get that and more in cheaper by going younger. And it's kind of, I mean, hell, there's a lot of parallels from, from the running back market to the journalism sports broadcasting industry. They're always going to find somebody younger, cheaper, (laughs) willing to do it for less. And I think you honestly see that with running backs too. I mean, there's a reason right now that we're at a stalemate and waiting for Saquon Barkley and the New York Giants to, 
either work out something by the July 17 deadline or he's probably not coming to training camp and he doesn't have to. He's not going to get fined. He hasn't signed a contract. But it's the, the market for running backs – like Christian McCaffrey's deal, the four years, sixteen million that he got back in twenty, that's an anomaly. We will not see a contract like that that again. And you know the way he's utilized is not as a traditional running back with San Francisco. There's there's more there's fewer outliers obviously at that position than there are the guys who like Jonathan Taylor. You know it's a brutal position. He got injured so early last season, and now he's trying to replicate the success he had that made him a top five running back in two thousand twenty one. There's no doubt I think that he can do it, but, like, how are the teams going to view that? Because they're going to say, well, you know, you factor in the injury year. By the time he's signing that new contract, you know, the age is a factor there. And, of course, the longevity at the position when they could just go draft your replacement. I think that's the mindset we've gotten in when we cover the draft and when you hear coaches and GMs talk about it, that it's a replaceable position. It's far easier to replace that position than it is others. And I don't really know if that's going to change anytime soon. But with the way that offenses have changed in the NFL, where passing attacks are more prevalent, like that's why you see the price of receivers, the price of tight ends um, continue to progress. Where running backs, even though we know that a good passing offense is supported by a strong running game, most times you're just not seeing that reflected in the pay. Carney Cronin with us, Chicago Bears reporter for ESPN. You catch her as well on ESPN Radio. And here also on ESPN 1000 there in Chicago. Courtney, you mentioned early in our conversation about the fact that that old boogeyman Aaron Rodgers is now out of the North and there's a real opportunity for every team in that division to maybe reestablish or take grasp of the balance of power that's there in the North. Vikings, you would argue, is probably at the top of that list right now with where their roster is constructed. But when you look around the North and you look at the Bears in this rebuild, and their strength of schedule this year. I know 10 wins is probably out of the question, but what type of opportunity is there this season within the North without a clear front-running candidate? It's interesting because everybody has the Lions as the favorite to win the division because we've talked about the quarterbacks, like who's the best quarterback, who would you want winning, uh, like you know, put the ball in this person's hand to win the game on the line. Jared Goff's the only quarterback in this division with three playoff wins and Super Bowl experience. Like it's a very wide open group now that Aaron Rodgers is no longer in Green Bay. And you have like two guys at opposite, four guys at opposite ends of the spectrum, two on each side. Kirk Cousins and Jared Goff have been doing this for a minute. Kirk is, you know, a very consistent, good quarterback who I know that, you know, I'm in the camp that we've seen his ceiling. And that's not a bad thing, but he's never going to elevate your franchise to a point where you're thinking this is the guy that's going to win us a Super Bowl. And, of course, we saw Jared Goff get to a Super Bowl with great coaching and with great pieces around him and a terrific defense in Los Angeles back in the 2018 season. And he's in the right system. And then on the other side of that, other side of the spectrum, you have two unproven talents. I mean, Justin Fields has been the starter for the better part of two seasons, and Jordan Love's going to be the starter for the first time. A lot more unknowns versus the other side. You know what you're getting, but it's it's kind of anybody's game at this point. Would I be surprised if the Bears went from fourth to second in the NFC North? No, not at all. I don't think they're a worst to first case, but I think a three-win team going to seven or eight wins is a massive success that they can be proud of at the end of this season, just given that means they're taking advantage of the landscape in the NFC North because of the opponents that they play. And of course, obviously their, their you know, non-conference non-division schedule as well. But 
it's, you know, who knows what Minnesota's going to be now? I mean, they have all these defensive changes for the second worst defense in the, yet there's a lot of talent that's missing there. And then, you know, with Detroit, it feels like they finally have all the pieces in place to make a run. And I don't think Green Bay is going to fall off nearly as much as people think because they're not in a rebuild. The rebuild's where you start siphoning off assets, and they haven't done that. They have 43 of their 90 players were drafted players, like, and they still have a lot of first-rounders on defense. But it's as wide open as I've ever seen it. It's certainly as wide open as it's ever been with, without Aaron Rodgers in the division. So for the first time since 05, there's that big change. And – you know, for the team that I cover, I think it's a perfect opportunity to try to, you know, grab some of that, you know, shift the balance of power back and, you know, establish yourself and not only in the Packers Bears rivalry, which has been so lopsided for years, but, you know, establish yourself as a team that in a year or two is going to be contending potentially for, you know, a playoff spot and, and for the number one spot in the, in the NFC North. I know you have network radio coming up this afternoon and evening, so this is going to be the last thing from me, but we are six weeks away from hosting joint practices, Colts-Bears, in Westfield at Grand Park. We'll have two days of joint practices, a day off, and then that second preseason game. So, Courtney, will have to catch up and get dinner while you're down here for that, expecting that you'll probably be here for that. But we were talking earlier about the balance of how much benefit there is to joint practices versus the preseason games and how much you will see the starters from both Chicago and Indianapolis in preseason game two. Where have you seen the greatest benefit or how have the Bears approached those joint practice opportunities versus preseason game opportunities, especially now with having more of an experienced type of roster? Yeah, this one makes a lot of sense because the Chris Ballard Ryan Poles connection, Matt Eberflus, Indianapolis connection. Like last year, they didn't even entertain the idea of doing joint practices with any team because they were just trying to get this, you know, the very beginning stages of a rebuild off the ground. They truly had to work on themselves before, you know, u- utilizing the preseason to go up against uh, other opponents to try to give yourself, you know, a better, a better test. Like it was such a challenge last year just fielding a, a competent roster, a competent team during games. So I think this is a smart play. Um, the, you know, the bo- both teams know each other pretty well, considering, uh, you know, the general manager and the head coach here in Chicago. And, you know, joint practices, some people think it might not be, like, you know, that big of a determining factor. But I promise you, like, when you see the starters go out of games, you know, second preseason game, that's when you're starting to figure out, all right, depth chart-wise, like, who's the third running back, who's a special teamer, you know, on punt return. Like, watching for those positions, usually at the second, I mean, any of the preseason games, but the second preseason game is typically one where, you know, the starters now play a little bit longer. But then it's like, all right, who who are the people that are coming in immediately after the starters? Because because those are usually like your high-quality backups and people that are going to get – players that are going to get considerable reps um, in, in preseason games, and that will likely determine kind of how the roster's balanced uh, come cut-down day. Courtney, appreciate you so much. What's, uh, what's next? Tell everybody where they can find you over the next few days as you are bouncing back and forth from Midwest to East Coast and all of the different platforms on which you are appearing. Yeah, well, I will be uh, I'll be on ESPN Radio today, so 3 to 7 Eastern time. I'm not sure. Do you guys have, is JMV 3 to 7, or is he, or this no. is his show yeah. right now, no, right? No, he, he's, three, he's 3 to 6. You're right, Courtney. Yeah, yep. you got it. Okay. 
So you might get like one hour of us at the tail end of that. But um, but yeah, a lot of that. And I will actually be in Plymouth, Indiana on the lake on Saturday. So very much oh. looking forward to that and uh, getting a little time off here. Well-deserved time off indeed. Hey, look forward to hopefully seeing you during the season, especially getting down here for training camp. And yes, catch up on some well-deserved rest <laughs> and recuperation. And we'll see you hit the ground running, you know, come season and uh, training camp when things get rolling in late July. Sounds great. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thanks, Courtney. Awesome. She is just the best. She's so fantastic. And it's always great to see not only her coverage of the Bears, but also from a national standpoint, everything that she's doing for ESPN Radio, ESPN Broadcasts, and ESPN.com.